Today on Something You Should Know, if you use reusable grocery bags, you need to know something about them. Then, you are deluding and deceiving yourself all the time, and that turns out to be a good thing. Being functional as a human being requires a robust amount of self-deception. That, in fact, someone who sees reality for what it is and can see nothing but reality in some ways is less functional than the person who can draw on these self-deceptions. Also, if you're planning to skip your summer vacation this year, think again. And the art and science of flirting. How do you do it and not get in trouble? If you do it the way that I've explained, which is first just asking a question, you know, not going up all like intense and I'm going to flirt with you, but just connecting as a, as a human being, asking one question and then assessing their reaction, there's going to be zero problems. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello, welcome to episode 588 of Something You Should Know. You know, there are two types of people in the world. There are people who bring their own reusable shopping bags to the grocery store, and then there are people who get new ones every time and often have to pay for them. If you do use reusable bags, you really have to wash them. In a study conducted by researchers at the University of Arizona and Loma Linda University, Almost all the reusable shopping bags tested were packed with bacteria. Half the bags had traces of coliform bacteria, while 12% of the bags tested positive for E. coli. And it's not just the food that you put in the bags that's causing the problem. Think about where you put the bags. Everywhere. You put them in the shopping cart at the store, which is a well-known germy spot to begin with. Then you put them in the back of your car where your dog sits, and then you put them on the countertops, which can be dirty as well. And then to make matters worse, you do fill those bags with unwashed vegetables, possibly broken eggs and leaky meat packages. The good news is, though, that your reusable shopping bags can be salvaged simply by washing them. You can kill more than 99.9% of harmful bacteria by washing them. With cloth and canvas bags, you can just throw them in the laundry, although it's recommended that you wash them separately from your clothes. And with the polypropylene bags, you do have to wash those by hand. If you're using reusable bags at the grocery store, it's really important to wash them regularly and frequently. And that is something you should know. You are deluding yourself. And so am I. We're all deluding ourselves because, well, that's what humans do. And it's not necessarily a bad thing sometimes. In fact, it can be a good thing. But sometimes our self-deceptions can cause problems. 
So why are we deluding ourselves, and what are we deluding ourselves about? Here to explain is Shankar Vedantam. Shankar is author of a book called Hidden Brain, and he's also host of a great podcast called Hidden Brain that is extraordinarily well done. He has a new book out called Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Hey, Shankar, welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. So explain what you mean by how we delude ourselves. And, and just in, in big, broad strokes here, what are we, what are we talking about? Well, in our daily lives, uh, you know, many of us experience a moment when we are not seeing reality clearly. And we often know what that's like. You know, we know when we're sort of fooling ourselves into believing something that isn't quite true. And we've been taught over and over again that self-deception is a bad thing and being deluded is a bad thing. And for the most part, I agree with that. I agree that self-deceptions and delusions can, in fact, be very harmful to individuals, to communities, and to nations. But it also turns out, paradoxically, that sometimes self-deceptions and these delusions can also be useful. They can be useful in our personal lives, in our interpersonal lives, and also in the lives of our groups and, and, and nations. Give me an example of that. Well, the simplest example might come in in thinking about our interpersonal relationships. Um, So a variety of studies find, for example, that people are happier in their romantic relationships when they believe their partners are kinder, wiser, and more good-looking than they actually are. And in some ways, this is not a surprising thing, of course. If you believe that you are in a very happy relationship and that your partner is an exceptional person, you're likely to be happier in your relationship and your relationship is likely to be more stable. You know, Mike, if you and I went on a road trip this coming year and we stopped by every wedding uh, that was happening in the United States and we asked people on their wedding day, what are the odds that you're going to get divorced? If people were statisticians, they would tell you that the odds of getting divorced uh, in any marriage are about, you know, between 40 and 60 percent. I bet you that no one on their wedding day would tell you that they have a 40 percent chance of getting divorced. And in fact, if someone told you they had a 40 percent chance of getting divorced on their wedding day, that person is likely not heading to a very happy marriage. So it's a small example of how in our daily interpersonal lives, a certain amount of self-deception, a belief that your relationship is going to be special, that you are in a special relationship, that your partner is exceptional in some way, that you are wonderfully matched, all of these beliefs might not be completely true. But to the extent that they are untrue, they can also aid us in being happier in our relationships and in strengthening and cementing those relationships. When I think about self-deception, I think about those people that, for example, in my career, I have seen people who truly believe they're better at what they do than they really are, or, or, (laughs) or at least they're better than I think they really are. But that belief in themselves even though they don't have necessarily the results to prove it, that belief that they're good is what drives the success that they have. Right. So this is the great dilemma of self-deception, which is, you know, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I think all of us can cite examples of people who have such outlandish views of themselves, so so outlandishly positive in terms of their self-concept, that in some ways they bring themselves to harm. So you can imagine somebody who is in Las Vegas and believes that they are extraordinarily lucky and says, you know, let me bet all of my life savings on what happens in this on the spin of the of the wheel, and and they come to a sorry end because in fact they are not as lucky as they think they are. In, in fact, the, the the wheel is basically following the laws of probability. But it's also the case, as you point out, that belief in oneself can also be an enormous driver of people. It can drive people to behave more optimistically, very much like the example we gave a second ago about interpersonal settings. If you believe you're in a happier relationship, you're likely to be happier. And the happier you are in your relationship, the longer the relationship is likely to last. It's exactly the same when it comes to all manner of different kinds of performance. So if you're part of a sports team that doesn't believe that it's going to win, what chance do you have of actually winning? On the other hand, if you're a sports team that is not very good, but you actually have a very strong belief that you are going to win, perhaps it won't come true, but at least you're going to try really hard to make sure that it does come true. And some of the time, you're going to end up succeeding. People who have a strong belief that they're going to be successful, you know, in some ways have the wind at their backs. It doesn't mean they're always going to be successful. Sometimes they're going to fall flat on their faces, but it does mean that they have the wind at their backs. They're more likely to succeed than if you actually believe, you start out believing you're going to fail. 
What about the other side of the coin? People who are good, people who do things well, but have deceived themselves into thinking that they're not very good. Yeah, in some ways, this is called the imposter syndrome. You know, so people show up in a in a in a workplace sometimes, and they feel like they don't belong in the workplace. And a variety of psychological studies show that when you suffer from the imposter syndrome, exactly the same thing happens, except in the reverse direction, which is you might in fact be good, you might in fact be competent, but your belief that you are not a good fit for the workplace that you're in, or that you're not very skilled, in some ways impedes your ability to do well in the workplace. One way this happens, Mike, is that you know, think about what happens in educational settings where sometimes students show up at a college and they don't believe that they actually belong. Maybe there are very few people who look like them in the college or there's some other reason they feel like you know, they're imposters in college. One of the things that research scientists have found in studies of, of first-generation college students and others who are in some ways breaking barriers to enter, to enter college is that when they experience setbacks in college, so let's say in your first year you receive a bad grade or you're very lonely in your freshman year or or you receive some kind of negative feedback you know maybe you don't have friends sitting with you in the cafeteria at lunchtime when you receive these negative signals people who have imposter syndrome are likely to draw sweeping conclusions about themselves they're likely to tell themselves look you know the professor has given me a bad grade and this confirms to me something that i believe which is i don't belong in this college what they're missing is that all the students in the college in fact are experiencing setbacks of various kinds your first year in college many people are lonely many people receive negative grades many people receive all kinds of you know perceive all kinds of hurdles and challenges but when you have imposter syndrome you're likely to Take those challenges and blow them out of proportion. You're likely to say, this means I don't belong. So the very same phenomena that we've discussed that can, that can help people in certain settings, the, the power of expectations and beliefs can certainly work in the other direction as well. So which is the bigger problem, people who think they're great when they're not or people who are great but think they're not? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. I think it all depends on the context and the situation that you're in. Uh, because as we've seen, the, the paradox is that it can work in, in both directions. So, so people who are sometimes very hesitant about their own views, they're very cautious about how they approach things. Um, there have been studies, for example, that look at men and women in entrepreneurial settings. And a variety of studies find that women tend to be a little more cautious than men in entrepreneurial settings. Uh, as a result, they tend to bet you know, they don't tend to bet their whole life savings on projects. They tend to be a little more cautious. So if you have to make a, if you were to make a bet on an individual man or an individual woman on a project, you might actually be better off betting on the woman because she's less likely to lose her shirt. She's less likely to make such a wild and reckless bet that it basically blows up the whole enterprise. You're more likely to get that when you're dealing with a man. However, given that men as a group are far more likely to be risk takers, when you look at the overall group of people who are entrepreneurs, you're more likely to find men rather than women represented in this group. And part of the reason is, you know, there, there are certainly the sexism and who gets funded and who gets access to resources. All of those things are real. But it turns out the appetite for risk-taking is itself a predictor of success. Now, it's also a predictor of failure. This is the paradox. There's not a clean line that divides it that says these self-deceptions are always good, these self-deceptions are always harmful. The idea of deceiving yourself on the surface doesn't seem like a good idea. That that, that would be something that you would want to stay away from. And yet what you're saying is that it really serves a purpose. As I followed the, the research and I followed the science, it became abundantly clear to me that in some ways, uh, you know, ordinary living, being functional as a human being, requires a robust amount of self-deception. That in fact, if you don't have a robust amount of self-deception, you're not going to be able to function in your day-to-day -day life. This is true when it comes to your personal relationships. It's going to come to your academic success. It's going to come true in your professional success. If you're an amateur sports person, it's going to affect you. It affects you in all manner of these different domains. Someone who sees reality for what it is and can see nothing but reality for what it is, in some ways, is less functional than the person who can draw on these self-deceptions in, in times of need. Are you shining a light on something that maybe we're better off not shining a light on? Because if, if I'm deceiving myself and it's working and then along comes Shankar and telling me that I'm, I'm, I'm really basically a fraud, well, well then I'm going to feel bad. 
Yeah. So one one thing to take heart in is is the reason our brains come up with these self-deceptions is because our brains fundamentally are not in the business of seeing reality accurately. The reason our brains have evolved over millions of years of evolution is our brains have evolved for a very simple goal, which is to help us to adapt to our world and to survive. Those are the goals that the brains have, adaptation, survival. Now, if seeing reality accurately helps you to adapt and survive, the brain is beautifully calibrated to see reality accurately. If a tiger were to show up at your, at your, your neighborhood tomorrow, you know, your brain is perfectly calibrated to take that reality into account and to take precautions against that predator. However, if adaptation and survival call for you not to see reality accurately, your brain, again, is perfectly well calibrated not to see that reality accurately. So it's absolutely the case that I suppose that if I come along and tell you, look, your brain is doing all of this stuff behind the scenes to keep you from seeing reality accurately, it's a legitimate question to ask. In some ways, is this impeding the functional way the brain operates? But remember, you're up against, you know, four billion years of evolution. Your brain has spent a lot of time perfecting the of self-deception. So I have very little concern that my book is going to disabuse people of the self-deceptions that in fact keep their lives intact. We're talking about self-delusion, how we all delude ourselves and why we do it. And my guest is Shankar Vedantam. The name of his book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, For as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin-D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Shankar, we've pretty much determined that all of us engage in some self-deception and that that's useful. But as you point out, there are people who go too far with it, that delude themselves about things that can cause trouble. And so what is it that causes that? Why does it get so out of whack in some people? I think a lot of it actually comes from the architecture of the brain itself. And, and let me give you, a, the, the, in some ways, the canonical example of self-deception of a useful delusion that I've experienced in my own life. Um, when my daughter was born, uh, she's 15 right now, so this was a while ago, but on the day she was born, 
I had the sense that not only was she the most special child in the universe, uh, I had the sense that she was the most special child in the history of the universe. I had the sense that, that nothing this extraordinary and miraculous had ever happened to anyone else in the history of the universe. Now, of course, if I step back and I put on my science journalist hat, I would have had to tell myself, of course, that must be a delusion. It can't possibly be the case that millions upon millions of parents can believe their child is the most special child in the universe. They can't all possibly be all correct at the same time. But it turns out that this delusion that I had is remarkably useful because as I quickly learned as soon as my daughter was born, parenting is very, very hard. It's time-consuming. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It can be irritating. My daughter was really a wonderful child. She was actually a very easy child. But still, parenting turned out to be one of the most difficult things I ever embarked on. And it turned out that my self-deceptions, my delusions about my daughter were an important buffer against the body blows that parenting lands on you. Any parent can tell you this. You know, if you were to very deliberately and methodically and logically draw up all the costs and benefits of having children when you when you have, especially when you have small children, you know, many parents might logically conclude that children in fact are more trouble than they're worth, that they that they give you m- many more costs than benefits. But the self-deceptions that that nature in some ways endows us with that generates in our brain, these self-deceptions in some ways keep us they tilt the scale so that we perceive the benefits to be significantly higher than the costs. And there's obviously a very good reason for this. The reason I exist and you exist and all of us exist today is because our parents had the very same self-deceptions about us that we do about our children. So this this capacity for self-deception, in fact, is driven by a very long-standing need that evolution has of having parents invest greatly, invest heavily in the well-being of their children. Uh, so when you ask where do these self-deceptions come from, uh, Admittedly, some of these self-deceptions might come from the things that we learn from our cultures, and different, different cultures might have de- deceptions about different things. But I suspect that the single biggest contributor to these self-deceptions comes about just because of the, the brain that we're endowed with, the, the, the product of natural selection. You know, we have brains that are designed, as I said, to help us adapt and to survive. And to the extent that self-deceptions help us adapt and survive, our brains come programmed with robust machinery to generate those self-deceptions. To the extent that self-deception can be harmful, unfortunately, you know, alarms don't go off when that happens. So how do you catch yourself? How do you realize that you're deceiving yourself to your own detriment? So you've asked an excellent question, which is, how do we guard against the dangerous delusions? How do we guard against these self-deceptions? And the answer is, you really have to rely on other people to help you. Because in many ways, you are not going to be able to see all the self-deceptions that you have. This is why, in some ways, it's very useful to have teams where people can communicate with one another and share, in some ways, what they're seeing about each other's blind spots. A great irony is that our opponents, our enemies, are a wonderful source of insight into our self-deceptions. Because as I said a second ago, we can see the self-deceptions and delusions of our enemies, and it turns out they can see our self-deceptions and delusions very clearly. Now, of course, very few of us want to engage with our opponents, with our enemies, to basically say, tell me what you see when you look at, look at me. Tell me about my, my behavior. What are you seeing that's paradoxical, or what are the mistakes that you think I'm making? We often hold our enemies and opponents at, at arm's length because it's so unpleasant to hear from them. But it turns out that our opponents and enemies are, in fact, an invaluable source of information about our self-deceptions and delusions, if only we would care to stop to listen. I remember being very interested in this whole concept back years ago. I, I dipped my toe in the water of stand-up comedy, and <laughs> that didn't last very long. But, but I, there were guys there who had been doing comedy for a long time that weren't very good, and, mm-hmm. but they thought they were good. And what was interesting is because stand-up comedy is one of those things where you, so many other things in life you can make the case for and argue for and against. Comedy people either laugh or they don't. Yes. There, there's a yes. single test of success. And this guy would, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, who would get up and people wouldn't laugh. But he thought he was good. And here in the, in the face of evidence, people are not laughing at your jokes he okay. still thought he so he was deceiving himself about his own self-deception. Yes, that's right. I mean, and when you think about this, this is actually 
I would say not surprising at all, because when you think about stand-up comedy, uh, I have never tried my hand at stand-up comedy, but I suspect it's actually one of the most difficult things to do, because you're essentially putting yourself out there in front of a live audience, and as you say, there's very clear feedback of whether you're successful or not, and the feedback is, in, is instantaneous. Um, and so it's really difficult to do. It's difficult to do well. It's difficult to do well on a consistent basis. And so, you know, people who engage in, in, and practice stand-up comedy in some ways require sort of a really robust amount of self-confidence to be able to keep doing it to sort of, because it takes a certain amount of punishment. It's a, it's a little bit like parenting. You know, it takes a certain amount of uh, hardy constitution to be a stand-up comic, just like it takes a hardy constitution to be a parent uh, because you get so much negative feedback almost right away. Um, you know, almost more than half a century ago, the, the psychologist Leon Festinger, he infiltrated a group that believed the world was going to come to an end on a certain day. Uh, and they had a specific date they believed the world was going to come to an end. It was a little group. And Festinger infiltrated the group because he wanted to understand what, what would happen to these beliefs when the world, in fact, did not come to an end on that particular day. And he expected that people would say, OK, I made a dreadful mistake. This was a terrible error that I made. I'm going to revise my beliefs. However, emphatically, that is not what happened. When the world did not come to an end on the appointed day, the members of this little group doubled down on their beliefs. They found ways to rationalize their beliefs. In fact, they came up with stories that said the things that we did, this little group that we did, in fact, prevented Judgment Day from happening, prevented the end of the world from actually occurring. So they came up with rationalizations. So you can see how even when it comes to profound beliefs, like the world is going to come to an end, people are able to come up with delusions to protect, in fact, the integrity of their delusions. So is it really so surprising that someone who's a stand-up comic who's getting feedback night after night that people are not laughing at his or her jokes, he or she comes up with stories that basically say, you know, I am really funny. It's just that the audience didn't get this joke. I actually, that, that joke really killed, but the audience was not smart enough to pick up on the joke. We have, again, robust machinery in our heads to pervert the truth if it'll help us protect our self-concept. I suspect that was what was happening with the stand-up comic you knew. I've always wondered, because there's always those groups that predict the end of the world, and I've always wondered what they do the next day. Like, well, well I, I always figured they all go, oh, man. What happened? <laughs> but you're probably right. They probably, they come up with some explanation that puts them in a good light, that they did everything they could, and that, and, and as you point out, that they think they're the reason the world didn't come to an end. Well, that's a good day when you think you stop, stop the world from ending. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, you think you're the superhero for preventing the world from ending. I mean, you, you could have that feeling every day, in fact. If you believe the world was going to end tomorrow and it doesn't end tomorrow, you can pat yourself on the back and say, see, I, I kept the world intact. So, you know, at, at the one level, it is, it is sort of comical and it is funny that people are able to do that. On the other hand, you can actually say this is what all of us are doing, perhaps not to the same extent, but all of us in some ways are engaging in the same kind of behavior on a routine basis. And one way I know this is the case is that if you look at people who have certain forms of mental illness, especially forms of illness like depression, you know, for a long time, people believed that people with depression were seeing the world with a delusional pessimism, that, you know, the belief was that people who are mentally healthy are seeing the world accurately. People who are depressed are seeing the world with a delusional pessimism. Over the last 20 or 30 years, a number of studies have actually advanced a different theory, and the different theory is actually quite startling. It's that people with certain forms of depression might in fact be seeing the world accurately. They might in fact be seeing the world exactly for what it is, and it's the people who are mentally healthy who are seeing the world with a delusional optimism. And what, that, what I take away from that research is really, to some extent, being mentally healthy, being well-adjusted, being able to function well in the world might not be entirely about seeing the world accurately. It, in fact, might be about coming up with stories that buffer, that buffer you against the setbacks and challenges and obstacles that you perceive, coming up with stories that tell you, you know, yes, to today might not be a good day, but tomorrow is going to be a better day. When you lose the ability to do that, when in some ways the misery and the suffering and the setbacks that you've experienced consume you, you tip over from being mentally healthy to being mentally ill. You essentially say, you know, this person needs therapy, this person needs help, uh, this person needs help. And, and the irony here is the help that you're providing to this person might require them to be pulled out of seeing reality accurately to seeing reality delusionally. This whole idea that we're all deceiving ourselves is so interesting. 
Well, I think it's interesting, but maybe I'm deceiving myself that it's interesting. Shankar Vedantam has been my guest. The name of his book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. He's also the host of the podcast Hidden Brain, which I think you'd really enjoy. There's a link to his book and to his podcast in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Shankar. Thank you so much for having me on, Mike. It's been a delight to be on your show. When I say the word flirting, you know exactly what I mean. People flirt. They talk with each other. But flirting is different than chit-chat or small talk because somewhere in the mix there is an element of romance or sexual attraction. And what's interesting is that flirting is different in different parts of the world and even in different parts of the United States. And there are more and less effective ways to flirt. And sometimes flirting can get you in trouble when it's not appropriate. So here to help sort out the subject of flirting is somebody who has studied the topic pretty thoroughly. Gene Smith is a social and cultural anthropologist who is arguably one of the leading authorities on the art and science of flirting. And she's author of a book on the subject called Flirtology. Hi, Gene. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you, Mike. Nice to be here. So I was a little surprised to read that flirting behavior is different in different parts of the world because, you know, I guess because I always thought, you know, flirting is flirting, but that's not what you found. I researched flirting behavior in New York, Paris, London, and Stockholm. And I found there, there definitely was a difference in the way people flirted. But with my own experience, for example, I lived in Japan and I needed the help of the Japanese teacher who sat next to me at my desk to interpret the Japanese male flirting behavior because it was so subtle and I didn't even realize it was happening. So there are definitely different levels of how obvious a culture is. So how do you define flirting? What it, what's flirting and how is it different than other kinds of conversation? Okay, right. This is actually the most important question. And it was the first question I asked people in my interviews. I interviewed 250 people. And the problem is, I don't think there's any other word in our language that has so many different definitions for the same word. So for example, for the people in New York, flirting was just like a fun and playful way to engage. In in London, especially the males would say, it's a it's a way to possibly get into a relationship, or it's a means to an end. They didn't necessarily like the path, but they liked what they would get at the end. In Stockholm, flirting was just about eye contact. So, and in, and in Paris, now actually in London, they were quite wary of flirting, like people weren't necessarily being genuine. So yeah, this is the big problem, Mike, is like everyone has a different definition. I think what I found that I can say pretty conclusively is actual flirting has some sort of sexual undertone. And that is what differentiates it from, for example, being charming, which the the London females would say. They'd say, well, I don't know if I flirt, but I'm charming. Or the New York uh, women would say, well, I'm, I'm nice and friendly. I don't know if I necessarily flirt. And so this has always been interesting to me that is flirting, must flirting be a means to an end? Because in my single days, I enjoy... I enjoyed flirting with people, not because I necessarily wanted it to go anywhere. I just liked the banter. I liked, it was, it was a beginning, middle, and end all by itself. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Flirting definitely doesn't have to lead anywhere. And in a way, part of the fun and excitement of flirting is the unknown, especially when you're single. This is why some people come to me and they say, how can I keep flirting in my relationship? It's like, well, once you're married, there are much less unknowns. <laughs> so when you're single and flirting, you know, nothing could happen. Something could happen. This person could be your friend. You might never see them again. So yeah, definitely just for the fun of it, uh, you can flirt. But if you're chatting, even if there's a, a, a somewhat of a sexual charge in the conversation, if you're not hoping for anything, are you still flirting or are you just talking? I think most people, at least in the U.S., think of flirting as that it at least could go somewhere. 
I wouldn't say most people. I'd say some people, like especially if you're looking for something or you need something or you're single and you want something. But, you know, there's a lot of people in relationships and flirting makes you feel alive. You remember that side of you. And it's it's also, you know, this is what people would tell me. And I agree. It's a, it's a fun way to pass the time. You mentioned the banter and there's nothing better than getting in some really good banter with someone and, you know, the sparks. I don't think you can talk about flirting, at least in the 21st century. If, if you're going to talk about flirting, which we are, I, I think you have to talk about the potential for trouble. When does flirting become harassment? Where is that line? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really quite simple. I teach it as test and assess. And actually, it works really well in, in our time of COVID as well, because people have different ideas about how close they want you to stand or do they want to talk to you. So this test and assess method is useful across all sorts of planes. And what this is, is you test the water by asking a question. And then you leave space. And this is what's been missing. And when you know we're talking about harassment and this and that, there was zero space to actually look at how the other person was receiving this. It was just like straight in with no consideration for the other party. So the test and assess is you ask a question, you pause, you look, and you see, okay, what's their body language like? Are they backing away? Are they leaning in? Are they smiling? Have they responded? What's, what's their response? And that's the assessment. And then, you know, you're, you're good to go. You can gauge, okay, they don't like this. I'm going to leave. Or actually, they're really receptive. I'm going to continue. Well, what's that question? I imagine that has a lot to do with what kind of response you get. Yeah. Basically, it's you ask a question about the context of your situation. So you just start with a regular friendly question. You don't start, you know, the Joey Tribbiani, how you doing? That's a bit too intense for everyone. And it's just, let's say you're at the supermarket and they're looking at something. So what they're looking at would be the prop that would enable you to ask them a question. So you'd say, oh, have you tried that before? Do you know anything about this product? What do you think of this? And that's it. Or if you're at, let's say you're at, you know, you're playing tennis or something. I, I just got back from the tennis court, so it's fresh in my mind. And you're just like, oh, have you booked this court? Or, oh, is, is this your tennis ball? Or something like that. And again, if they're friendly and receptive, then you think, oh, I can carry on. But if they're like, hmm, or they're just kind of short answer, then they don't want to engage with you at that moment. That's fine. I can imagine people hearing you say that and think, well, see, here's the problem. I don't want to go to the store and pick out a grapefruit and get hit on. I don't, I, I don't want that. Right. So here's the thing. We have to back up. And the, I should have been clear in this. The first step and the intent isn't, I'm going to hit on this person. It's, I'm going to ask this human a question. And when we sort of take it down to this base level, first of all, it takes off so much pressure off of everyone. And this is the key. Like pressure is the enemy of flirting. So if we can just make it as like simple and straightforward and easy as possible. So we look over and see someone who looks interesting and we just, and we know nothing about them. So before we build up all these things in our mind about this person, what they're going to say, what's the eventual outcome, we just go over and we just ask them a question like, oh, have you tried this before? And from there, we can start the potential, whatever might happen or not. But we don't want to start it way too early before we have zero information. And do you see how that sort of changes the energy or the even attitude of the outcome? It's, it goes from like being hit on by, okay, a human is asking me a question and I, I can answer however I want. But don't most people, like, if, if, if I'm squeezing melons at the grocery store... <laughs> Or a woman is squeezing melons at the grocery store, and some guy comes over and asks her about melons. Don't most women know, he doesn't really want to know about melons. He's just testing the waters here. So I think there's a danger in creating a narrative before something has happened. I hear what you're saying, and you chose a specifically, like, you know, almost sexual example about squeezing melons, right? But if we just take it to, like, the everyday you know, someone's looking at a box of cereal or this or that. So there's two points here. One is let's not take the most extreme example. And the second thing is let's not create a narrative in the future that hasn't happened yet. So it's, it's about staying in the moment. And the reason why I stress this is because once we get into the future, 
we can create whatever scenario we want. And guess what? It's usually not a positive one. It's usually not one where that makes us think, yeah, I want to go ask that stranger question. It's one that usually makes us turn around and do nothing. And that's, that's why everyone's moving to the apps is because they're afraid of doing this in real life. They're afraid of talking to people, to connecting. They're afraid what's going to happen. They're going to get rejected. You've identified some of the, what you call the myths of flirting. So let's talk about some of them. What, what are they? One of the myths is that only men can make the move. And this is something that I feel is so outdated. Anyone can make the move. If, if we look at it from a, an economic perspective, let's think of the 50s or 60s. Men, men had most of the jobs. Women often worked inside the home. They had more economic opportunity. Therefore, they also were expected to pay for the dates, and they were expected to maybe even have transport to pick up the, the woman. I'm talking about heterosexuals at the moment. But, but this economic situation has now changed because with the economic power, you also get choice. So back then, the man was expected to also you know, be brave enough to ask out the woman but then had all the responsibility that came with that. But he had the choice, and that is a really important thing. But nowadays, the economics are changing. They're not perfect, but they're definitely changing. And with women having more economic power, it also means that they need to be and have the privilege of being more assertive and choosing as well. So this is sort of what some of the New York guys said in my research. They were a little bit like, oh, the women want to have their cake and eat it too. They want us to pay for everything. Um, and they also want us to ask them out. But I think what a lot of, I think we haven't quite changed quickly enough through the times that now women should also be asking men out. Just, we don't, these, these rules seem so old fashioned and I don't know why we're still stuck. It's nothing to do with biology. Yeah. But don't you, well, you've talked to people, you've done the research. I, I've always had this sense that, you know, women know that they could ask out men, but they like being asked out, that they would prefer to be the recipient rather than the initiator. That's definitely a, a personality thing. And in fact, I've always said, why isn't it the people who ask out linked to your personality? Like, for example, extroverts do the asking out and introverts are the recipients because there's plenty of introverted men and extroverted women. So that's definitely a personal preference. But from my research, I have found that a lot of women still feel they need to stick to these rules. But at the end of the day, if you're the recipient, it means you won't be rejected because the other person has made the first move. And I think a lot of people like that idea. But then, of course, you have less choice. You only have the choice of, you know, the few people who've been brave enough to ask you out. What about where you do this? It seems like the context, the situation matters. Like flirting at work is probably less acceptable than at a bar. And, and flirting at a funeral is probably not a really good idea. That context is everything. Yeah, it is. And it's also the best way to meet people. And this is, this is meet anyone is commonality and proximity. And the two work together really well. So what I mean by that is, first of all, you're probably going to have things in common with the people who are close to you anyways. But if you add the proximity, the more that we run into people, the more we actually like them. And this is called the mere exposure effect. So the more that we're exposed to people, the more we like them. So thinking about where you go all the time in your daily life, your commonality and your proximity, those are the places where you just need to start asking people questions. That's it. You ask everyone one question in the context of where you are. And then you do the tests and assess. You see how they respond. But do you think that when, when people start a conversation, and again, I understand what you say about, you know, don't get too far ahead of yourself. You're just asking a question. But do you have a sense that most of us know when we're being flirted with right away? No, I don't think it's true. In fact, I found in my research, a lot of people miss it. They say, well, I'm a friendly person, so I think they're just being friendly. Or, like, especially some of the London males, they were just like, if they're not writing it in huge letters, uh, like, on the, what's this, the Skywriter or something, I'm not going to get it. So a lot of people, they don't get it at all. So you think you're being obvious, and they have no clue. 
I guess it's that that sense you that like what you said you you kind of get ahead of yourself and you 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 think like you're flirting even before you start flirting and that the other person is already on to you and you're already feeling weird about it when in fact nothing's happened yet. Exactly. And it's such a personal thing. Like we all have different levels. We have different levels of openness, of understanding. And we think that other people have our exact same level, but they don't. So what happens when people from different cultures and you you said it it sort of happened to you that when you're when when you're not uh, familiar with the flirting rules where you are I imagine it can get kind of weird <laughs> yes exactly i remember going to paris when i was in my 20s and i'm from iowa originally and i'm used to like making eye contact and smiling at people and i was doing that in paris and i, I mean i attracted the wrong people until my french friend was like Gene, you don't make direct eye contact with strange men. They're going to think you're up for it. It's like, oh, good to know. And as you look back, has flirting changed much? I mean, I know we have electronics and we do it online now and all that, but are the basics of flirting fairly constant or do they evolve? That is an interesting question. No one has ever asked me that before. I think it's changed in two major ways. And one is the electronic devices. And I think it's become more about quantity and less about quality. Um, very one dimensional. That's, I'm, that's my opinion. <laughs> Other people might love it, but I don't think that's the way forward. But again, everyone has gone to these devices because the insecurity about not being rejected. And part of the reason they've done this is the second thing I'm about to mention. And that is the changing of gender roles and what's expected. So when I did my research in Paris, and this was over 10 years ago, especially Paris comes to mind because men had very specific roles in the flirting and women had very specific roles and nobody crossed. But the way society is now is that's, you know, that's very old fashioned. So now everyone's confused. Well, what am I supposed to do? You know, men are like, can I still ask out women? I I don't want to overstep. Women are like, oh, we're not allowed to ask men out. Well, yeah, you are. So everyone is so confused about the rules that they've just all hidden behind their phones. Yeah, that's interesting because if you, if people are all confused about the rules, if you're flirting and it's going well, and then it's time to like, you know, wrap it up, move on to the next step, whatever, nobody knows what to do because you know, well, I, I like him to do it. Well, if she's really interested, she'll ask me and and nothing ever happens. Yes, exactly. And that's why I, I'd like to stress what I did earlier. Like all my, I have, my clients are men and women and everyone should be doing this. We connect first as humans. We test it out. And then if we want to move to flirting, great, wonderful. But again, it takes the pressure off and it makes it easier just to have connections with humanity. Well, I like your approach of, you know, not getting all your head all into this idea that you're now going to flirt and that uh, flirting is about to commence and that it it, it is, take it down a notch. If you do it the way that I've explained, which is first just asking a question, you know, not going up all like, you know, intense and I'm going to flirt with you, but just connecting as as a human being, asking one question and then assessing their reaction there's going to be zero problems. But it would seem, because at some point for this to become flirting, according to your definition, where it has to get a little bit sexual, somebody has to dive into that pool. And that's where I think people are afraid. Yeah. And by the way, when, when I say a little bit sexual, just to clarify, just a sort of like, we're bringing our sexuality into it. That's what flirting is. Not that, you know, sex is going to be the outcome. So just to clarify that. Um, But see, that happens if it's meant to happen in a natural way after you and that person have started in the interaction. You can't decide at the beginning, especially of not knowing someone, I'm going to flirt with them. That's No, it it happens if once you, you know, start exchanging a few lines and you you get the feeling and you're like, oh, I like the sound of their voice or, oh, actually, they're even more attractive than I thought. That's when it will naturally move to flirting. 
so it's much more organic than I think people think, especially when, you know, you hear people say, oh, you know, I'm, I've got a great line. Well, you know, probably not. Um, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> it, it, it seems like we've all heard all those lines and they're really, really corny and stupid. And, and boy, if that, if that doesn't telegraph you're getting hit on, you know, what does? You're right. The word is organic. It's much more organic than people think it is. And when we look at it as a yeah, natural way of just people interacting, again, it takes the pressure off, which is really what we tr- you want to try and do. Yeah. And just let it happen if it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been fun and interesting. And, and I think, you know, it takes the pressure off to hear you talk Flirting doesn't have to be this thing that you build up in your head. It just, it's much more organic and it's just a conversation. My guest has been Jean Smith. She is a social and cultural anthropologist. She's author of the book, Flirtology. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. And she also has a website, flirtology.com. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. Well, it's summertime, the world is opening up, and it's, it's time to take a vacation. And yet, as many as 50% of American workers don't take all their vacation time. If you're one of them, consider these facts. A State University of New York survey found that men who took annual vacations reduced their risk of death by 20%. Men who didn't take any vacations in five years had the highest death rate and incidence of heart disease than any other men surveyed. A study by Wisconsin Medical Journal found that women who took frequent vacations were less likely to become depressed, tense, or tired. Workers who take vacations are less likely to experience burnout, making them more creative and productive than their overworked, underrested counterparts. What's really odd is that more of us are canceling vacations voluntarily. No one's asking us to. Why? Probably because people feel guilty or fear being fired while they're gone, or they worry they'll miss out on something important if they're not at work. But the data shows that vacations are vital for health, longevity, productivity, and creativity. And that is something you should know. You are our best advertising to help us grow this podcast by telling people you know about something you should know and having them give a listen. Please do that. Tell someone, share the link, and let them listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.